Pacic just got to let it hang. He's just he's just got to play almost a little reckless. You know, I, I think that's experience. I think he learned a lot last year. I mean, I saw him walking around the development camp and he looked shredded. There is uh, Rick Tockett talking about the Podfather. At least that's what he's being called in the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox now. I like it. I like it. The Silly Pod Coles, a new dad, shredded, and getting ready for training camp. Does not believe in a, uh, a dad gut. He's shredded. <laughs> he was shredded at dev camp last he's, week. He's got a different kind of dad bod going, uh, does uh, Vasily Pod Coles. A 22-year-old dad bod, I guess is uh, what you might say. But, uh, yes, we're going to keep getting into the Vancouver Canucks. Alfred and Bruff in the morning is brought to you by the Delari family, family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. It's Dan Riccio and Randy Janda. We are the morning show this week. Alfred and Bruff on from 9 to noon. And uh, that's where Rick Tockett was uh, speaking yesterday. Let's bring in our next guest. Uh, has his latest piece up at The Athletic on Carson Soucy and the potential of his top four potential with the Vancouver Canucks. It is Harmon Dial. Thanks for this, Harmon. Um, first on uh, on Vasily Podkolzin, we heard uh, Coach say there he he needs to play reckless. Uh, can can you understand what Rick Tockett is is saying about Vasily Podkolzin's game and how it can develop? Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting because we just uh, had uh, Rick Tockett on the podcast yesterday as well, Farhan Lalji and I and. Um, we had asked him about Pod Colson as well, and one of the main points that Taki was emphasizing was that Pod Colson's decision making needs to be more decisive, quicker. Uh, he, you know, Taki wants Pod Colson, and, he, and he's communicated it as such that he wants the player to be sort of scanning proactively, so that look, the NHL is so fast that if you're trying to make a decision of what to do with the puck once you receive it, it's too late. You're already going to have somebody closing in on you. Uh, you're not going to be able to make a sort of controlled high-end play in all likelihood. Uh, whereas if you know a couple seconds prior to getting the puck that you're likely to receive it and you get your head up, your shoulder checking, you're seeing where your options are, then when you receive it, you know what your best play might be, whether it's either to skate it forward, whether you've got a teammate in a strong position to immediately pass the puck to, um, you already know what you're going to do before you get the puck. And I think that's an area where, again, Tockett wants Pod Colson to be a lot more decisive, and he thinks that it can help the speed and, uh, and quickness of his game. And we hear Tockett just in general speak a lot about this too because – for instance, with Brock Besser, he's mentioned that, hey, a guy doesn't have to be the fastest uh, in terms of actual speed to to actually look and play fast. Um, that if a player can also lean on his hockey sense, then that can help make them, um, make them a player that is consistently sort of making the right play um, in, in all situations, and, and that can help a player be more creative. And so... I think with Pod Colson, it's uh, helping him. I think mean, coaching staff is trying to get him to be a little bit, uh, lean on his hockey sense a little bit more to sort of help on top of the physical tools, which we know he already has. 
And sometimes I think when you, you talk about that mentality, it's a fear of a mistake, right? You're overthinking the situation or you're, or you're uh, you know, lacking confidence. And, and it's something that we heard with Bruce Boudreaux, even with Pod Colson as well, is that, hey, when he's playing his game, he, he's a beast out there. But one mistake and, you know, the shoulders drop and the confidence goes out the window. Um, something to watch there. We always forget that he's a 22-year-old. Uh, still trying to figure out his game. Uh, Niels Hoaglander signs that contract, two-year deal. Uh, what's his path to the NHL uh, in training camp here? Because there is that logjam of wingers, but is there a clear path for him, or is he going to have to uh, really, really wow this coaching staff to get a shot? He's going to have to beat out somebody like a Phil Di Giuseppe for that job. Obviously, Di Giuseppe looked really good down the stretch and in his final 30 games he had earned a middle six spot on the miller line i uh, was forechecking well playing with exactly the type of wall work uh two-way sort of attention to detail uh and um and sort of work ethic and energy that uh Talkett really admired and that he wants out of his wingers now with uh hoaglander i can see a path where he can let's say earn a third line role especially because he has the speed and quickness to be really effective as the first man in on the forecheck, uh, which is an area where the Canucks want to be more aggressive, want to hound opposing defensemen so that they make more mistakes and turnovers. And um, and especially since Hoaglander has some bite and, um, and physicality to his game as well, especially when you think back to his rookie season, he wasn't just a creative offensive player. This is, somebody who would get in on the forecheck, went a lot of battles along the wall, and uh, his his play along the boards was really mature and impressive for his age. And so I think that's a, a real asset of his game, uh, a way that he can stand out to the coaching staff on top of what he can do offensively. And then on, t- on top of that, I think in terms of what he needs to iron out, it's going to start with the puck management because – over the last couple of seasons, especially during his time under Brudro, that part of it has been in- inconsistent, uh, where a lot of times he'll try and force a play off an offense's own entry. And when you do that, if you're losing a puck there, there's a good chance that the opposition is going to be able to get back up the ice on an odd man rush. And, and that's just the the type of mistake that Tockett isn't, um, you know, I, I don't think he's going to have a lot of patience for. So, it's worth pointing out that Hoaglander during his time in the AHL seemed to make legitimate strides in making better decisions in those areas. So that's definitely a positive sign. The other thing to keep in mind is that the Canucks' bottom six, when you look at the centerman in uh, Bluger as a potential 3C and Oman as a 4C, there isn't a lot of scoring punch in that bottom six right now. So you may be leaning on the wingers to kind of drive the bus, right? If, if again, Bluger is the third line center, for example, it's great defensively, but relative to most three C's, he doesn't have as much offensive punch. So one advantage of Hoaglander is that if he can get back to where his finishing was as a rookie, for example, then he's got the ability to add a level of five and five offense that could differentiate him from, again, let's say I feel Giuseppe in training camp. So, I think those are some of the factors to watch for as he competes for a job in uh, training camp. So your latest piece up at the athletic focuses on Carson Soucy and you go through some of the tape and start to, to figure out whether or not 
the Canucks make the bet or the Canucks bet on Carson Soucy that he could see more minutes and maybe excel in a bigger role in the lineup. What did you find when you started going through the tape on Carson Soucy? Yeah, he's really interesting. I think the initial sort of first thing that stood out was that a lot of times when you have a defenseman that is a behemoth, right? Susie six foot five, you are are sort of paying close attention to see what their actual defensive IQ is like, uh, whether they're sound positionally, whether they make good reads, because sometimes you have these defensemen that sure they have the physical attributes and they can box guys out in front of the net, but they put themselves out of position way too much, and it feels like their actual infield defensive ability is uh, is overrated. And I think with Susie, the good thing is that it's not just the competitiveness, the size, and the physical play, all of which is already an asset that he uses to close on guys in corners, along the walls, uh, to break plays up down low and off the cycle. But he has a level of calmness and... I think just being in the right position almost all the time, that um, that is impressive, that uh, I like to see. This is a player who isn't going to chase the puck, um, let's say on the perimeter or behind the net, in a situation where if he does so, he's going to be abandoning the front of the net. He's, he's a guy that is conscious of trying to take away the middle of the ice, trying to take away the passing lanes near the front of the net as a first priority before – he's sort of taking care of other defensive threats, which is the type of, uh, I think, defensive maturity that you love to um, see in a uh, in a player. Now, of course, that's not to say that he's a Chris Tanev-like defensive w- wizard. Nobody's expecting him to be that. He's not being paid to be that type of player. But it's, first of all, nice to see that element. I think the concern that uh, I have, or I, I shouldn't even say concern, the question mark I have, when it comes to him in a potential top four role is his puck moving looks really, really limited. And for a guy of that size, for a guy in that role of being a defensive defenseman, look, nobody's expecting him to skate pucks out like Quinn Hughes. Nobody's expecting him to make beautiful, crisp outlet passes. But what you're hoping for is almost the Luke Shen thing where it's like, if you're going back for, a dump-in that the opposition has made. You want to be able to win that race and either and make the quick backhand shovel, the 5- to 10-foot play to your partner, or be able to make a play off the wall to a winger who has time and space. It's, it's nothing flashy. It's, it's just a simple, quick, clean play that even defensive defensemen in today's game that play top four minutes need to be able to make at least semi-regularly. And with Susie, it just feels like whenever there's a puck that gets dumped in his corner – unless he has an abundance of time and space, if he has a forechecker on his back, he just isn't able to win that race. He just doesn't have the agility and uh, puck skills to make a clean play. And so that's an area where watching the tape again and again, it was a recurring theme. And look, if he's playing with Quinn Hughes on his offside, if Susie's comfortable enough to play that right side on a full-time basis, it's not going to be nearly as much of a concern but if it's, let's say, a spot where he's playing with, um, you know, Philip Peronik, Peronik's a really good defenseman. But one thing that uh, you realized watching Peronik play last season was that he's less so a dynamic, uh, electric transporter, more so than a jack-of-all-trades two-way defenseman, a steady guy. And you don't want to put too much of the puck 
moving burden on one guy because I think that was the difference between, you know, when he played with only Mata, with those two guys, you look at the, the you look at the zone exit numbers, they had a relatively balanced share of, you know, the transition load and they had a lot of success together as a pair. Whereas when Hironic played with Ben Sherratt, a physical stay at home defenseman, Sherratt's puck play is really, really limited. So Hironic had all the pressure and burden to move all the pucks out and uh, that pair struggled in terms of controlling shots, in, tr- in terms of controlling chances, in terms of controlling goals. So that's a bit of a concern I have, and it's why when I watched UC play, I thought to myself, okay, this is a player who looks like a really good number five on a playoff team. Could he be a number four on a team that's looking to make the playoffs? Maybe, but it's a little bit of a stretch right now. Um, in terms of the other parts of his game, I like how he defends a rush. Um, of course, there is always a question of how is a guy's skill set going to translate against, you know, from starting a third pair role to now all of a sudden you're playing top four minutes, you're going from playing against bottom six competition uh, to first and second lines. That's that can often be a significant jump as well. Um, so I think the the bottom line is I think there are, are I think there are still some question marks and. Um, I think he's in a position where if he could even improve the details of his puck play by like 10%, I think that would be enough for him to level up to to being the love, to being at the level of a bona fide supporting top four defenseman. Um, we'll just see if that's something he can iron out and that's something that there is some uh, pathway to, uh, to improve on. And look, ultimately, at the end of the day, the Canucks didn't break the bank to sign him anyway. So even if he is only just a, a good number five, you're not worried about the contract. It's just, okay, well, what does that mean for the top four next season? And that's such a big part of this because I think, you know, Carson Soucy, the term that you give him, uh, the money, as you mentioned, it's not a huge cost, but at the same time, you're expecting him to take a jump from being a third-pair guy to be at least a second-pair guy. But with Ian Cole, I just think that's a much better fit with Quinn Hughes. He's got experience playing, you know, next to some really special defensemen like Victor Hedman. He's played over 20 minutes a game uh, consistently in his career, whereas Carson Soucy, that leap seems quite far. So, you know, is Cole the better fit with Quinn Hughes there? Yeah, we'll find out in training camp. I'm curious to see how uh, talking experiments with the experiments with the pairs. But yeah, right now, as I see it, I think Cole is probably the better fit in that uh, that role. It'd be a, it'd be a lot to, to ask for in for Susie to say, all right, we want you to go straight from the third pair to the top pair, and um, and not only adjust to that sort of difference in, in quality of competition and role and um, workload of minutes. But now we also want you to play your offside on uh, on a full-time basis, which Susie can play the right side in a pinch. Um, I'm not sure we've seen a long enough track record to be able to know that he can play the offside on a full-time basis, right? Because there's a difference between the guy where it's like, okay, if there are injuries or – if you need him to play the wrong side uh, or the opposite side on uh, the occasional sh- shift here or there, that he can do it as opposed to we want you to do it on a full-time basis, um, playing against the opposition's best players in a first-pair role. Um, whereas with Cole, obviously, he has ext- extensive top-four experience. He had an awesome year in Tampa last year. Um, was playing really tough minutes uh, against opposition's first and second lines. Um, as you alluded to, was logging 19, 20 minutes a night. 
Um, was first over the boards on the penalty kill, which is another distinction from Susi, right? Um, where Susi, he has good defensive tools, but he hasn't been tested above, um, you know, a second unit PK role. Even in the playoffs, when you're watching the tape, um, he only got occasional shifts here or there shorthanded. Whereas with Cole, the like key and Chernak were over the boards first, and uh, or and, uh, and Cole really excelled in terms of his uh, PK numbers when you look under the hood as well. So. I think this is a player that's um, really battle-tested in um, in high-leverage roles, uh, defending against the opposition's best players, both at even strength and shorthanded. And um, he's coming off a year where he drove excellent defensive results um, at uh, at 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 all uh, you know at all game states. So Cole's uh, a really intriguing ad, and for you know for a one-year deal, I, I love the fit, and he's. Um, uh, a great potential stopgap to play alongside Quinn Hughes for sure. So we know the the defensive improvements, right? And and the expectation is that uh, this will help fix part of the penalty kill as well with with Bluger, Cole, and Susie coming in. But the more I I look at it, Harm, the more I wonder um, how much is this team going to struggle for depth scoring? Right, like they were kind of middle of the pack in chance generation last year at five on five. They're going to rely on the power play. We know that for sure, but uh, is it too uh, early to worry about um, scoring through the entirety of this lineup to be an issue for this team? It's a fair question for sure, especially because like it may sound, you know, sort of strange to, to talk about, Oh, could, could scoring be, a sort of, um, I don't want to say a problem, but, you know, especially in the depth side, uh, an area where you might be left wanting um, more. Um, it is because when you look at, the again, the team's five-on-five, five, um, you know, offensive profile, as you sort of alluded to, in terms of generating shots, chances, even goals, that they weren't that impressive. I think for quite a while now, the teams had a lot of offensive offensive success in large part because, uh, the first unit power play has been so productive. It's uh, consistently scored at a top 10 rate in the NHL. And that's an area, too, where they're going to have to find a replacement for Bo Horvat in the bumper. And I don't necessarily know if they found that down the stretch when they were experimenting with a ton of guys in that um, in that role. Because you look at, again, the last few years, Bo Horvat was by far the team's um, number one goal scorer. And it wasn't even really close, especially as that kind of trigger man in the middle, a lot of one-timers, getting set up for Miller, getting set up from the guy down low, a lot of tic-tac-toes. He was just such a decisive, clinical finisher in that spot. And it's such an important role. And I don't know who's going to play there. So that could be, especially you're heading into next season, um, having made a change behind the bench too and letting Jason King go. So, you also wonder about the power play, and and that's not to say that it's not gonna, that it's all of a sudden going to fall off a cliff. But you could have a scenario where, from could it go from you know top ten to only slightly above average or, or league average? Um, maybe if you have issues finding a good finisher in the middle, or the the other thing to keep in mind is like in, in a lot of people's minds, you could you know you look at guys like Besser and Kuzmenko, and you go, should be too hard to find a guy. Uh, who can score in the bumper. The difference is, though, that if you go with a right shot in that role, all of a sudden your entire power play look and setup is completely different. Because now all of a sudden JT Miller from the left half wall 
he doesn't have the one-timer option in terms of a guy he can pass to in the middle who can make that play. Now, all of a sudden, JT Miller is a primary playmaker as, as sort of being that quarterback on the left flank, the left half wall. You've got to rethink how you're making plays on the power play. You've got to rethink how you're attacking because handedness matters so much uh, in terms of, again, what areas of the ice you have the potential one-timer look. And so then you have a lot more change. Then you got to keep in mind that for the last, again, since the 2019-20 season, it had basically been the same power play look with Miller on the left flank, you know, the one-timer option with, uh, with Horvat in the middle, Pedersen, Pedersen on the opposite flank, usually a right shot um, net front guy, whether it, it had been Besser, Kuzmenko, Toffoli, then Quinn Hughes up top. So you could be fundamentally reshaping your first year power play, and you, you don't know if there's going to be you know, potential growing pains. So if, you know, if, if you're especially running into that type of scenario on special teams, then you're going to need the five-on-five scoring to come. And, of course, um, in the bottom six, you have a couple of, of limited offensive uh, offense, offense centermen and Teddy Bluger and, uh, and uh, Nilsson Mons. So that's where you're going to need more offensive pop, I feel like, from your wingers. Uh, I, I think this is where it's so important for Hoaglander to take, to take a step. I think it's so important for um, Pat Colson to take a step. Um, with Garland coming back, one thing that I liked about him is that he's typically been a five-on-five scoring ace. Um, could he be a guy that fits into your fits into your you know let's say third line and helps give that line a little bit of a boost offensively? I think those are some of the ways leaning on your wingers to drive the drive the depth scoring that you're going to have to lean on because um, you're right they don't have a lot of um, you know and again in Bluger and Amon um, they aren't high profile offensive uh, bottom six pieces. Harm, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for your insights. Thanks, guys. Uh, there is Harmon Dial of The Athletic and, of course, the VanCast as well. Some uh, some good thoughts. And it's the big bet. Of all the free agent bets the Canucks made, the biggest bet they made was on Susie all, from a financial perspective and also from a projection perspective because – they are, with this contract, projecting him to do something that he hasn't really done in his career yet, Randeep, and that is play top four minutes, right? He's been a 16, 17-minute third-pair defensive guy that can play on your second PK, but he hasn't been trusted to do more than that. He's now getting paid to do more than that, and he's slated to do more than that on this current Canucks lineup. Yeah, that's why you give him the term. That's why you give him... Probably a little bit more money than most people thought. I thought he was going to fall in that 2.75 to 3 million. He gets a little bit more than that over three years. Um, you know, that could be due to other teams being interested, whatever. Now, yeah, this is this is a bet the Canucks have made, but it's not a huge bet, right? You're looking at a guy that ideally, if it works out, your penalty kill is better. Yep. And let's be honest, it can't get much worse than it's been the last it couple of years. It can't get worse, I don't think. Tougher to play against in and around the net, right? Yeah. Like, this is a guy that's going to plug lanes. At the very least, on the PK, he's going to be better when than what the Canucks have offered the last couple of years. Yeah. Now, beyond that, yeah, you're asking for quite a leap. A guy that played, you know, 17, 18 minutes per game to probably be in that 20-minute range when everything is said and done, and probably more if he's playing with Quinn Hughes, uh, it's going to be a leap, but... They have, with the Ian Cole pickup, allowed for there to be a stopgap in that top pair. And yeah. l- listen, this is 
ideally Carson Soucy is able to do a, a good job for a year, two years, and then by then you hope you have another right shot defenseman who can actually play on their natural side. That Tom will Villander. replace Tom Villander, and maybe there's another trade to be made down the road yeah. where you're able to replace guys playing on their weak side or playing Tyler Myers, who will not be under contract. So this is more of a long-term play at the same time. In the short term, you're going to need him to eat 20 minutes a game probably. Yeah. But hopefully in a year, maybe two years, he kind of goes back to being a third-pair defenseman. That's the play here. Yeah, it is It is definitely the play. And what I, what I think about with with Carson Soucy and, and how he plays in the lineup, I can see him playing on the right side of, of Quinn Hughes. Now, I know you mentioned you see Ian Cole in that role a little bit more. If I'm handicapping it today, I think Cole plays with Philip Peronik, and it'll be Carson Soucy with Quinn Hughes. Now, one part of it, I think, is because of what Harm mentioned. You know, Soucy isn't exactly the most adept at moving the puck out of his own end, so that can be relied upon with Quinn Hughes. I also like Soucy as, like, Soucy's got a great shot. Right, he scored ten goals a couple of years ago, his first year in Seattle, and in theory, he's going to be kind of left alone up there at the point as Quinn Hughes kind of does his thing. If the Canucks get some offensive zone time, it could open up some shooting opportunities, just like it did for Luke Shen last year. And the other part of that too is you can the Canucks will move around their lineup as it goes. But even Luke Shen, for as much as he played with Quinn Hughes, never really played much more than 17 minutes a night with the Vancouver Canucks. So I can see a way that the Canucks use Susie there and they're able to really maximize whatever minutes they use him in next to Quinn Hughes and on the PK. So that's where I think Quinn, uh, Carson Susie ends up lining up. One thing I guess you could maybe we could see is that I, you know, in a, in a circumstance, when you're looking at the right-hand side, you always think, all right, first pair guy is going to get, what, 20, 21, 22 minutes? Yeah. Second guy is going to get a little bit less, and the third guy is going to get significantly less. But they might, you know, like give give Meyer some offensive zone shifts with... And, uh, and that's my point, right? Yeah. Where you might have more balance on the right-hand side because you don't have a natural righty in Cole or Susie, so you're saying you're going to live in that 18-minute range. Yeah. Um. Ronick will be the high guy probably on that on that right hand side of overall in terms of getting the most minutes, but Tyler Myers is probably not going to get that little. Yeah, you know, he's probably going to be still going to be around twenty minutes tonight. Probably be around there as well because he will kill those penalties. So there's probably going to be a lot more balance on the right hand side than we expect. Quinn Hughes probably eating twenty five minutes a game, probably twenty four. The right hand side a little bit more balance. It's uh, it's going to be interesting to see how Rick Tockett works his lineup. Keep your texts coming in. 650-650, Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. We'll get to some of your texts. Also, Puck Doku, it's uh, the latest game show to be don't sweeping. Don't say it. No, I, know, I know what you were going to uh, say. Don't, uh, don't you dare say it. No? Okay. It's not sweeping anything. <laughs> it's taken over the 745 time slot here on the morning show. We'll get to Puck Doku and... You are a part of that, of course, helping us fill it out through the course of the morning, and we do so together each and every morning here on The Morning Show. But up next, the NBA in-season cup. Will hockey emulate it? We'll tell you about it, and also wonder if it's the future of the NHL as well. That's next on The Morning Show.
Lastly, um, just want to re remind all of you that new traditions take time. And you guys, when you're talking about this on ESPN, it takes a little bit of time to establish a new tradition. But all throughout sports, we're seeing new innovations. And now is the time for this NBA in-season tournament. That is uh, Kamish of the NBA, of the association. That is uh, Adam Silver trying to sell the masses on the NBA in-season tournament, what they are calling the NBA Cup, Randeep. It's a new, uh, it's a new, it's a new way here for uh, the NBA. It's the morning show with Dan Richo and Randy Janda. The morning show, Halford and Bruff in the morning, brought to you by the Delari family of Acura Dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Uh, how uh, how much do you know about the NBA Cup? A little bit, enough, yeah. enough to know that this is like everything in sports these days. It's all about that paper. It's about that revenue. Yeah. How do we get people interested in the NBA product before the playoffs start? Yeah. That's what this is. Where halfway through the season, guess what? You're not watching basketball. Unless you're like a hardcore fan. Yeah. You're not really watching basketball until the playoffs start or the final, you know, the playing games. This is a way to get that casual that sits around not watching basketball until that time engaged. So if you are you know, a fan of one of the best teams in basketball. The regular season is almost just like an extended preseason <laughs> until you get to the postseason. And look, you know, this year there was a lot more variance in the NBA playoffs. We saw more upsets. I mean, heck, there was an eight seed in, in the NBA final. So it's not as if it's as rudimentary as I'm making it out to be. But you kind of know who's going to the NBA playoffs. And once you get there, you kind of know who is going to be involved when it comes to it playing for the Larry OB. So how this is going to work is they're going to have, they're going to put every team into groups and it's part of the NBA schedule. The group stage is really just the NBA schedule. It'll count towards your NBA in-season cup tournament standings. And then they'll figure out the six group winners and two wildcard teams will go to the quarterfinals. And those will be played also part of regular season games that are uh, have dual intention, I guess you could say, until they finally head off to Vegas and play the final four of this NBA in-season cup in Vegas. And technically the only extra game that counts that doesn't count towards your regular season standings is going to be the championship. So it's convoluted. It doesn't make a ton of sense. I think people are going to be figuring it out as they go along as to what it actually means here. But what they're trying to do is what soccer does, you yeah. know, have a domestic cup, right? The Italian cup, the FA cup, Opa the Del Rey. Carabao yeah. cup, whatever it might be. The Canadian championship is something that uh, the Canadian teams of MLS and some of the other local professional clubs play in here as well. So that's essentially what the NBA is trying to create. And what I've known is if you're not a soccer fan in North America, one of the first critiques that many people have about soccer is like, I don't know what the champions league is or the UEFA cup or the Europa league or 
what's the Carabao Cup? Like, I, what are all these different cups? So I think that's going to be the hardest thing to get people on board with. And one of the selling points is that, hey, it's going to play into the schedule, which is very unique. Even the European soccer leagues don't even do that. Essentially, what they do is they create a separate tournament altogether that incorporates teams from different divisions. So when you talk about the Canadian Championship reach, we're talking about the Whitecaps, TFC, you know, yep. the MLS teams. We're also talking about lower-level teams. We're talking about other leagues getting involved. Yeah, semi-pro teams can, can go all the way. FA Cup, you've got teams that have no business playing Manchester City or Manchester United or Arsenal or, or Chelsea. They look like they're playing in a schoolyard. <laughs> but that's, that's the beauty of this tournament in those countries is that you've got these random matchups that give you a Cinderella. Something you'd never see on a regular basis. Who in the NBA Cup is going to be a Cinderella? Like, the Charlotte Hornets? No, because bad teams aren't going to... Like, no bad team is going to win a group. Well, this is also about getting the players to care more about the regular season, right? And to want to play for something, and their incentive is more money. Yeah. But do they really care about winning an extra 500K? That's ultimately... Like, when you're making as much as... Especially some of the top guys in the NBA make... You know, is an extra 500K. Like, that's that's a weekend out in Las Vegas for them. No, and maybe that's the incentive. You can go to Magic City with that 500K. You see some of the guys Atlanta, who are... But, like, I, I don't know if, if there's much more of an incentive. Yeah. You see some of the, the money. Some of, like, you know, uh, how many guys are making 20 mil in the NBA now? It's like you're a above-average player. You're making 20 million in the NBA. I, this is going to be the thing. I, I don't think people necessarily give a bleep about it until you get to the final, right? And then maybe you have those whatever respective fan bases that get into it. They're doing it in Las Vegas, so it's going to have a bit of a big feel being in a neutral site that's not an NBA city currently. Sure. Uh, it's also probably a bit of a uh, – testing of the waters to see how well the NBA will do in Las Vegas, which I don't think anybody has any doubt an NBA team in Las Vegas would do really well. Yeah, they are watching the Vegas Golden Knights situation <laughs> real close and saying, yeah, we got this. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll figure this out. I think we can make this work. But the hardest thing is going to be to sell it through the first number of years. If you can build it out over time, it might stick. It's not something I'm necessarily seeing – like, I don't think it's going to have overwhelming success to the point where Gary Bettman and the NHL are like, do we have to do something like this? Like, it just it doesn't seem like something the NHL would immediately adopt because I don't think it's going to have immediate overwhelming success for the NBA. No, but, you know, I think one of the things that the NBA is trying to do with this is saying, all right, we're an international sport. Fans of other in other countries will get this because of that soccer culture. So a North American fan, it might take longer for them to understand what's going on. But if you are an international soccer fan or some of these international basketball leagues already in Europe, yeah, in Asia, they have similar things already. So it's an international play. In hockey, however, if I'm a player of the NHL, if I'm a member of the NHLPA, if this was ever floated, you know what I'd say? How about you figure out what's going on with the World Cup of Hockey before you come up with junk like this? Yeah. <laughs> before you come up with gimmicky stuff, yeah. give me best on best before we even consider something like this. It's uh, figure out the World Cup. That would be the, the NHL's best way to create a new revenue stream immediately. The NBA is 
in a different world when it comes to revenue, yeah. revenue, and just the way that the Olympics has actually helped the NBA product. Like go back to Barcelona and the Dream Team. That was a game changer. Even yeah. though they didn't control that the revenues from that, the NBA took full advantage of that. So they don't even care about the Olympics. It plays in the favor of the NBA. The NHL is nowhere near that. The NHL has got to build the infrastructure right now. So, Reach, I don't necessarily want to see a tournament like this in the NHL. I'll be honest. To me, it's gimmicky. To me, it kind of... Well, the NHL, you can more credibly see a, um underdog story happening. More random, yeah. More right? randomization in the game. Like, the Miami Heat is about as close to an underdog story as you're going to get in the NBA. And they have a pretty damn good... Doesn't basketball that, team. Doesn't that take away from your game if the San Jose Sharks win your midseason cup? <laughs> like, does that not make your league look bush league when a team that's rebuilding a Cinderella story yeah. comes out and says, wow, Barabanov's the <laughs> half-season MVP? That's I why like- I think there's got to be something more on the line, right, than just money for the players because yeah. it doesn't add to your legacy. Oh, I have three NBA cups. It's like, who cares, right? Yeah. it's It's got to be a reputation thing that you got to build out over time. I, you know, I wonder if we end up seeing, you know, some of the middling teams in the NBA take this more seriously, you know, or even the top teams, like maybe if, you know, in November, this is a group stage game for the NBA cup. Maybe we won't rest Steph Curry for this one or, you know, give him a maintenance day, but everything the NBA does is trying to limit the maintenance days. It seems of, of some of their top stars, the way it's been going lately. Okay. They might not rest Steph Curry in that game, but how about yeah. if they lose, he's going to be arrested in the one after, yes. <laughs> right? Like, so, so you're still going to have load management. It just won't happen in these maybe few games. And the thing is with the top teams, it's much like soccer where they can rest some of their top guys and still end up having success. So it's, not a black and white situation. A lot of our texts are saying this is such an incredible gimmick. Um, what's uh, the point of this? I mean, we all know what the point is. The Straight NBA, cash, homie. The NBA is going to try and create more dollars out of this, and ultimately that's what matters most to them. Uh, we got this text. Was it gimmicky when Lester won the EPL? That was a league. Yeah. It uh, wasn't gimmicky because it still had some of the same familiar uh, sense that – uh, a regular EPL season would like uh, Arsenal and uh, Tottenham not finishing the Bottling job in the it, way yeah. that they should have. <laughs> hey, if, if the San Jose Sharks end up winning the Stanley Cup next year, that is a Leicester City story. Yes. Not a midseason cup. Not a midseason cup. Uh, Peter and Cloverdale, I would do a regional tournament halfway through the season, one for the Canadian teams, call it the Canada Cup, and bring back the old trophy. The regional tournament in the U.S. would probably become a party. This would break up the season, and over the years, it could become a prestigious trophy to win. Teams are ranked according to the standings at the halfway mark, lots of revenue, and get rid of the boring time of the season. So that's Peter's thought for the NHL. If you could have a Canada Cup, similar to the way the Whitecaps, Portland, and and maybe Seattle do the Cascadia Cup, where it's just like your regular season matchups against the other Canadian teams count towards – your Canada Cup standings, and then at the end, the top two teams in the Canada Cup standings, they face off for the Canada Cup somewhere, you know, in, in, I guess, a neutral site location somewhere in Canada. Maybe that's something you could actually do and I could get behind, but um, 
I don't know about the U.S. teams. I don't. I don't feel like American hockey fans are getting back behind something like that. Yeah, Florida Panthers fans. Uh, mind you, the playoffs were different, but like regular season games, they barely show up. Anyways, they're yeah. not going to understand us. So <laughs> a battle of the southeast. <laughs> The Canada Cup thing is interesting because I would be like, all right, bragging rights. Canada's yes. team, well, this year, it was actually I mean, we have that Cup. conversation anyway, so it kind of works from a Canada Cup perspective. But I still want to see best on best before <laughs> we even consider something like that. Fair enough. Uh, all right. Uh, speaking of everybody's uh, favorite time of the morning, it is 748. Let's get to today's Pakdoku. All right. Uh, we've been playing it, and uh, since we started playing it earlier this week, I don't know if Halford and Bruff are going to have to continue this because, I mean, people are texting us left, right, and center. When is Puck Doku starting? Uh, we've been doing it at 745 each morning or, or thereabouts. So, uh, PuckDoku.com, you get nine cells, and you got to tra- try and figure out a player that works for each cell. So, today, Calgary and the LA Kings are in the opening cell. You have to find a player or think of a player that played for both of those teams, and you can't use that same player throughout the entire puck doku so let's start with that first cell all right calgary and the la kings first name that popped into my mind was robin regeer oh yeah i didn't think of robin regeer it's not recency biased i think trevor lewis would be the most recent because he went back to la yep milan lucic is another player uh craig conroy works as well sure what's the what's the lowest percent is it is it regeer it might be regeer uh, Mike Camaleri would work as well. Yeah, if we can spell his name right, uh, we can probably <laughs> make that happen. Because <laughs> I always—that's when I always screw up. Uh, actually, uh, Mike played with my brother way back in the day. Okay, the old uh, Duffield Panthers. I don't believe they're on today's. Uh, no, grid. they, they no. are not. Okay. Uh, where do we want to go? We've got a few answers. Six fifty, six fifty. You can play along too in the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Let's go with the former Camelot Blazer, Robin Regeer. Uh, all right. Tyler Toffoli would have worked as well. True. Good shouts on the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Uh, Oh, I almost clicked Richie Regeer. That would have been a problem. Uh, Robin Regeer uh, has a 4% next to his name. Pretty good. So LA Kings and Tampa Bay Lightning is our next box. LA Kings, Tampa Bay Lightning. Oh, I got one. Vinny LeCavalier? No, no, no. Oh. Peter Budai. Oh, my God. Did he really play for both of those guys? Yes, he did. Peter Budai? Put it in. I guarantee you. If he's a if he's a half percenter or a one percenter, I, he has to be. Uh, the uh, one I uh, was thinking of was not that. Either Le Cavalier or Simone Gagne. If we're, if we're reaching here for a... You better not be wrong about this because uh, Peter Budai is about to get locked in. He was in both organizations. So I think it fits. Yeah, I think it fits. Uh, I'm confident. All right. That's a 7%er. Really? On Peter Budai. I'm kind of surprised it it got all the way up to 7%. Uh, 50 plus assists in a single season with the LA Kings. I think we got a few options here. (laughs) Yeah, there's one very obvious one. Uh, Wayne? I I haven't put Wayne in any of these puck dokus yet. you're, you should be canceled if, uh, if that happens. Come Marcel on. Dion? I think that one, yeah, I like that one. I like that one. Uh, I think Dowdy would work too. I think Dion is the play here. Marcel Dion? Yeah. Go with the oldest folk? Unless somebody's got one real off the grid that we... Uh... Yeah, let's, I think that's uh, good. All right. 
We're going with Marcel Dion. Just 9% on Marcel Dion. Okay. He is like the most not thought of incredible scorer in NHL history. Like, isn't he still top five in all-time scores? Well, I guess, yeah. Who would have? It's it's anybody that was like prior to 1985. Prior to Gretzky, basically, gets disrespected. Uh, Save Dion for Red Wings. Man, we got so many options with the Red Wings and 50-plus assists. Uh, All right, Detroit-Calgary is uh, what we've got next. Uh, A couple of names I had thought of for Detroit-Calgary. Well, at least one, um, because we mentioned him earlier this morning. Mike Commodore. Okay, yeah, I like that one. Uh, I got Troy Stetcher. (laughs) I mean, it's got the local connection. I think we have to go with uh, Troy from Richmond. Um, I know there was some text coming in early on this, but uh, we're going to go Troy from Richmond because we got to speed it up here. Uh, Troy Stetcher going in, and he is a three percenter, so that's a big one, Randy. All right, all right. Detroit and Tampa Bay. Uh, this one, I, I mean, I always want to go with my guy, cousin Dino Cicerelli. It's the one I was thinking. Yeah. It's the. Who else we got here? I feel like there's a couple of goalies that maybe um there's always goalies that probably played for both of these teams. I, I think I think Dino's fine. We don't have that much time, so we gotta we gotta get this moving. Dino Cicerelli goes in at four percent, fifty plus assists with the Detroit Red Wings. Take your pick. Uh not Todd Bertuzzi. Uh, but I think that was I more I think Tyler for... Bertuzzi did not have 50 assists either, so <laughs> neither Bertuzzi. Uh, neither Bertuzzi. 50 assists for Detroit. Sticking with the Italian theme, Alex Del Vecchio. Go for it. That's the one. I mean, because we could go Fedorov. He could go Iserman. No, he that's... could go Datsuk. I mean, Lidstrom. Lidstrom. No, you don't want to go. Those are too obvious. Go Anything with... recent? Del Vecchio Del- it is. Del Vecchio might be. Uh... Oh, that's a 0.8% oh, answer. Oh, buddy. Let's go. Let's go. This is why you worked in the sports memorabilia shop right here. Alex, Alex Del Vecchio references. Yes. Shouts to Alex Del Vecchio. Had a, had a beautiful autograph as well, okay. by the way. Um, all right. Buffalo, Calgary. Mike G put it in earlier, and I love it. It's Doug Gilmore. Oh, yes. So shouts to Mike G. Came in early with this one. I don't think many people remember Doug Gilmore with the Buffalo Sabres. That's a four percenter. Okay. On a Hall of Famer as well, so not bad. Buffalo, Tampa Bay. Dave Andrichuk. That works. Chris Gratton. That one works. I don't know why you remember him, <laughs> but that works. My guy was a Team Canada player. How can you forget about Chris Gratton? I don't know. I just seem to have forgotten about Chris Gratton. Uh, Chris Gratton. All right, Chris Gratton it is. I don't think you can beat that. Oh, this one comes in on the text inbox. Right. Adam Creighton for Buffalo and Tampa Bay. All right, we got to take that one. That's random. I mean, that I one's... don't even know if it's right, though. This is the problem. Gratton seems... <laughs> Creighton? Is he in Buffalo? I don't know. Okay. I, I feel like Gratton might be the one to, to go with here. Okay, we're going Chris Gratton. That's a four percenter. And Buffalo 50-plus assists to close it out. Um, Do we go old school? The How old Buffalo, Buffalo Saber? Pat Lafontaine? No, pro. Oh, Gilbert Perot. Yeah, come on. Should have been a Vancouver Canuck. Yeah. Canuck's got talent instead. What are you talking about? It's even. Uh, current GM, Danny Briere, would work as okay. well. I like Briere, actually. Danny Briere? Yeah, I think uh, Gilbert Perot might be the bigger name here. Um, 
Phil Housley could work too, yeah. Um, all right, let's go Danny Briere. We'll lock it in. Daniel Briere, uh, we have a new best score of the week Ooh. when it comes to uniqueness. 44 on the uniqueness score. I will uh, tweet it out at DanRicho underscore. Shouts to all of you playing along for Paktoku this morning. Uh, that's an incredible one. All right, Dan Richo, Randeep Janda. It's the morning show on Sportsnet 650.